0: okay hello hello getting everybody set up here
1: i have a very interesting podcast that i'd like to share with you Um,
0: this podcast kind of took me by surprise Last night when I was listening to it, it was uh, really shocking. So it's called China, China's Silent Takeover.
1: The biggest threat to America is not al-Qaeda, it's not ISIS, it's not Putin, it's not any of these guys. It's China. Do you really believe that? I believe it. I think it's the most consequential
0: existential threat. In 2011 to 2013, they poured more concrete than we did in the entire uh, 20th century. Is that a factual statement? That's a factual statement. They had 100 years of bad luck, and now they're back on top. They are still, in their minds, perfecting their ability to control people. At any moment,
1: this thing can become unraveled. Who are you more concerned about, the totalitarian regime or the large technology company? Today, they have the same business model. Really? You're talking about having to change
0: a lot of things for us to move forward. What? So, what you can criticize is the policies of the government that allowed for the behavior to occur in the first place. That's a strong statement, you Are you saying you uh, guarantee China it. and Russia's in our network? I guarantee it. Particularly because you put out that video on China. Not only can you not opt out, you don't know who owns the data. Everything that you do can be watched. Is it political? To me, it's not political. It's not about quid pro quo. It's about adopting Xi Jinping's worldview. There is terabytes and terabytes of data that's created about you, and you have no control over it.
1: a video a couple weeks ago that got a few million views on a lot of content, so I wanted to go a little bit deeper. We reached out to General Robert Spaulding, who wrote a book called Stealth War, How China Took Over While America's Elite Slept. I literally couldn't put this book down, and once you read it as well, we'll put the link below, you'll know exactly why. He was the former senior director of strategy. At the national security council and he was kind enough to fly out to dallas for us to have this conversation together about us china 5g and a lot of other technical issues that have to do with that having said that thanks for coming i appreciate you for making Thank, the time. thanks for having me yes yeah, so uh, so let's let's get right into it so pre going into china what is your journey of you becoming a general at the air force and then from there being part of National Security Council, how did that go? About
0: I came into the Air Force uh, before, um, you know, I really knew much about the military, and you know, my picture of the military was about peeling potatoes and somebody yelling at you, you know, essentially, Gomer sure. Pyle. And I saw the movie Top Gun, and it was, it fascinated me and really got me excited. So I joined and, and just went in um, with no expectations, just had fun and um, and really just uh, worked hard, but also played hard. But, um, you know, I wanted to fly jets, and that was, uh, that was what got me started. And, um, you know, one thing led to another. Um, I had an opportunity uh, two years before I was supposed to leave the service to go live in China, and so I took it, and, you know, the rest is, is kind of history because when, that, when I made that fateful decision, and it was really about, um, you know, thinking about what uh, opportunity I had to go live abroad but also strategic China was in our future it really opened doors for me that quite frankly I I would have never considered I even had had no clue uh, about so so there was no plans of that there was no plans there was really really no plans in fact I didn't want a career in the Air Force so you you know I didn't look to become a general in fact when my wife uh, heard that I you know
1: had made it she laughed Why is that? That you made it as you're a like, general? Like, how could you make that? Because that for rank. me, you know, I mean, I was an E4 in the military, in the Army. You know, when we saw generals, we would shiver. It's like, this is a general, you know? Right, they, this is a big deal. But big for me, deal. it was, you, you know, just having fun serving it's my country. It's pretty wild how you think of it that way. Yeah, it's pretty wild how you think of it. What is the percentage of people becoming generals? It's no, minus. It's, it's very, very, very yeah, small very to many. see that star on the Humvee or whatever you're being driven around. I mean, that's pretty unique to have that, but... What year was it when you went to China? I'm curious. So first time
0: it was uh, 2002. So I actually went to language training at Monterey, the Defense Language Institute. YLI. Studied yep. China for uh, for 52 weeks. It's a 62 week course. I left in 52 weeks in June of 2002. Steph and I and our two boys went in the country and, uh, and lived in Shanghai and Pudong on the east side of the city, and that's the side that the Communist Party built up in the 90s, so that's where the Jin Mao building is, and all a lot of the financial district of Shanghai, and uh, we just traveled the country and lived with the people, and it was probably one of the most phenomenal two years of my life. It was a phenomenal experience. It was incredible. You know, the people were great. Uh, they're hard-working, resilient people, and you know, having learned the language before I got there, I could communicate and really travel all over, and, Really got to know how they think, and you know, uh, in a lot of ways, um, you know, not really fully understanding what was going on. I don't think you can live in China and fully understand what it is to be Chinese. But for me, uh, for, as an outsider looking at that country, it was it was exciting, and it was it was a place that I wanted to be. And so when I left in 2004, I told Stephanie that, um, hey, we're gonna we're gonna uh, I'm, when I retire from the Air Force. I'm going to come back here and I'm going to start a, start a business and get so lovely. So that was the plan, to want that to come w- back. That was the it. plan. Now, what's your rank at that time when you were there? In I, so when I got there, I had just made major, just made major. Just, major
1: so you were, already, uh, you were already, you were already. I've been in 10 years at the you time. You've been in 10 years, you're major. Right. And what was your job? What were you doing in China for U.S.? So the Olmstead program, which
0: is a program that uh, I was selected for, essentially picks three officers from each branch of the service and sends them to language school. It's not for you to go into a country that does has English as a, as a national language but a foreign language and so um, and then sends you in the country for two years and I went to a university in Shanghai, Tongji University, and uh, studied MBA courses and really it was about getting to know the people. It's really becoming immersed in what it was to understand uh, China,
1: the Chinese culture and history and the language so does China know that you're going in as a major? Is that a, a a a something that it's a basic open conversation? Hey, we're sending one of our majors from Air Force to spend so a couple of years with you? One of the great
0: things about the Olmstead uh, Scholar Program is that you do everything on your own. So you once you're accepted into the program and you go to language training, it's uh, upon your responsibility to go and get accepted into university to apply for a visa because they want you to understand what it takes to, to travel to a foreign country and so it's almost like being on a sabbatical. You're not, you don't, um, you don't have a detailer that you're talking to. You're basically cut loose on your own, uh, on your own recognizance to go and, and, and figure it out. But it, you're getting paid. So the military still getting paid. Okay. I mean, that, that's, I mean, it is, a, it is really uh, an incredible opportunity because South you South Africa, are, yeah. you're really learning uh, because you, you don't have a lot of support. You're out there um, by yourself trying to figure it out and you know there was you know how so how do i get there become a student get a student visa but also how do i get my family in there and how do i make sure that they so we had to take them out of country every uh 60 or, or every 90 days to 6 months to renew the visa and come back in so
1: so china didn't know you were there and you were a major
0: they didn't i was not there in an official capacity I, wasn't I was there asking. on a, so i wasn't there on an capacity. official visa i on a <laughs> diplomatic passport i was there on a on a basically a tourist passport with a student visa going to a university now when i met chinese i would tell them hey i'm i'm in the air force i'm a b2
1: pilot of course uh, they thought that was quite strange that i would be there but you know that's exactly what i would be thinking about because from what you read on culture you sense a certain level of not uh, paranoia or suspicious but why are you here what do you do? Are you a spy? You'd look like a CIA guy. I mean, if you go there, I'd look at you and say, maybe you are working, and you're trying to gather intel to bring you back, but that was actually not the case. But this is 2002 to 2004, and what was happening there, if you remember,
0: we had just, China just entered the WTO, so it was, it was breakneck speed to grow the company, our country, and grow the economy. Mm-hmm. And all of my neighbors were there building factories for Fortune 100 companies, and so there was a lot less um, scrutiny on me as uh, a military guy. I think it was um, the country at the time was focused on making money and, and, you know, certainly people found out who I was, but I didn't get a lot of scrutiny. That's good to hear that they didn't do anything now. The second time when you went back was what year? The second time I went back was in December of 2016 and that was to be the defense attaché in Beijing.
1: And this time around, this is a little bit more public, it's a, they know a little bit more that you're going or still oh, situation. It's, no. situation?
0: No, this is definitely, I am the senior defense official um, representing the Secretary of Defense and the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs to um, the uh, Chinese military, the People's Liberation Army in Beijing. And so I, for example, I got there a week before, they took the UUV, I don't know if you remember, but they took one of our underwater gliders uh, in the South China Sea. Uh, essentially, while uh, one of our ships was trying to retrieve it, and so there was a big um, controversy. Dip- there was a big dip- diplomatic controversy, and that was beginning to be a, a crisis. And I was the one that negotiated the return with the People's Liberation Army of that
1: glider to the to, Got the, it. to the U.S. What What was the biggest difference you felt culturally uh, and uh, uh, spirit from 0204 to December 2016? I never saw a guy
0: with a gun when I was there from 2000 to 2004. When I got back in 2016, there were people with guns uh, at the subway stops. Not all of them, but they were there and you could definitely feel a palpable change in kind of the tone of the country. Now, some of that may be because it's, it's not Shanghai, it's Beijing, which is the nation's capital, but clearly um, things were a heck of a lot more tense when I had been there in 2002
1: to 2000, just a completely, in my mind, different vibe. What, from your experience, and what, obviously to write a book like this specific to China, you've had to do a lot of research to be able to write what you've written here. Uh, Do you think a part of that happened where they are now growing up uh, uh, to the point where they're not growing up, that's maybe a bad word, they're becoming a bigger, I mean, GDP wise, they grew, uh, you know, to being at a higher number than what they were before. They're becoming a little bit more competitive. 2008 Olympics, it was a statement, they're opening, so hey, we are here to compete. Do you think a part of that is also their level of confidence to know that we can compete with everybody, let's be a little bit more cautious? and. Uh, protect, uh, protective of what, what we're trying to build. So look out there, or that was just a different city for you? Well, no, I think uh, there's a couple of things. One, the
0: party, the Communist Party, was really concerned about corruption. If you go back to 1989, the, the Tiananmen Massacre, the three things that the Chinese Communist Party learned uh, at, during that time was, one, the Communist Party was under attack by elements within China in league with the United States. Two, that openness was great for globalization in terms of science and technology and uh, economics and finance. But in terms of ideology, they needed to pour a whole lot more into uh, what they were doing in order to prevent their population from becoming democratized. And three, if the party ever became separated from the people, that the party would fail. And you can see that there's a definite paranoia on the part of the party in terms of not wanting to make sure that – while their people are very advanced in terms of the technology and the business models with regard to the e-economy, they're very cautious about that kind of getting out of control. And so I think, you know, they are still, in their minds, perfecting their ability to control people, but at the same time, they're concerned about, you know, at any moment, this thing could become unraveled. So it creates this kind of, you know... They really believe that. They really believe that, um, that it could, at any moment... Um, the party could essentially lose control because the population essentially um, awakes, and
1: and um, so I think it it plays into their that paranoia. Yeah. So so are they more concerned internally for it to collapse, or somebody from the outside to come and penetrate and confuse them and divide you know uh, from within?
0: I think it's a combination. It's a combination of um, internally in terms of are they. Uh, do they have legitimacy in the eyes of the people? And then what are some things that might, in their minds, confuse the people in terms of you know, um, democracy or human rights or
1: civil liberties? So with you now being who you are and you know, you were with the National Security Council, Senior Director of Strategy, you've written this book. It's very obvious on who you are and what your pr- position is at. Uh, Is someone like you able to go back with no issues? Like, would you be comfortable saying, I'm going to take my family to China? Absolutely not. Absolutely not? Why is that? Well, because clearly um, what I say in that
0: book is that the Communist Party is not uh, great for the Chinese people, and that's not something that they appreciate. People like me saying, um, certainly the way that you become a China expert in the United States is that you go to China. Uh, in order to go to China, that you say things that actually the Communist Party doesn't get angry about, and so uh, they may not even give me a visa. But even if they were to give me a visa, I would be concerned that I would go there, and
1: um, they would they would find some reason to not let me go back. Not let you come back here, Right. even though well, I mean today would be a good time to actually keep you if you went over there. So if you have any right. plans of staying in right. China, you may want to. Go I don't. I don't want to go back for back a long here? vacation. Yeah. So. uh, Let me me go back to something you
0: said because the other thing that that really um, happened, and you mentioned 2008 and it's important because it's not only the paranoia that they have, but also if you go back to Deng Xiaoping and what he said about hiding capability and biding time, this is not a change in what the Communist Party, who they are. It's really in 2008 when our our financial system essentially said that we really don't know how to run uh, global finance. Uh, that they really believe that they had arrived and so there, there's also an element of they've been you know having to play second fiddle um, based on the century of humiliation and the fact that you know they were the dominant uh, society for five thousand years they had a hundred years of bad luck and now they're back on top they're they're ready now to essentially um, take a leading role in the international system so you, you know part of that goes with not just you know, that vibe is not just with you know how they treat their population, but all, also how they treat the the West, how they treat foreigners. Because there is an element that says we're not going to back down anymore. We're going to be we're going to stand up for um, for what we believe, and and we're going to we're going to make a name for ourselves in the international order, and we're going to we're going to fight to have our interests
1: um, uh, uh, respected. You mean them them yeah so you say in the book i mean obviously i got a lot of uh, notes here. i got seven eight pages of notes to go through with you but you said in the book uh, that you will be- not you said this i think steve banner said this but you quoted it the biggest threat to america is not al-qaeda the biggest threat to america is not actually this is you saying it in the book i believe because steve banner said something else the biggest threat to america is not al-qaeda it's not isis it's not putin it's not any of these guys it's china you
0: really believe that I believe it. I think it's the most consequential, existential threat, not just to America, just to democracy the world's ever seen. And it's because it's cloaked itself in this picture of adoption of the international norms that were established, uh, and the rules and norms and the systems and the institutions that were established after World War II, perpetuated through the Cold War, and essentially, in our thoughts was dominant after the end of the Cold War. It was they wrapped themselves in that. And so there's a belief that they, uh, that they accept those principles. And, and what they say is they, they want to have the international system um, essentially correspond to their interests. But what they don't say what their interests are. And their interests are essentially counter to uh, every democratic principle that, that we stand for. Human rights,
1: civil liberties, rule of law it's interesting when you say that because that's a pretty bold statement to make you hear a lot of people talk about climate change you hear a lot of people talk about cyber you know cyber war all this other stuff which you talk about in the book as well but to say china is at the highest level more than isis al-qaeda putin those are some that's strong statements to be making but let's go a little bit back to you are working uh as the senior director strategy of uh, the national security council and you go in you said you have two reasons why you wanted to be a part of the man? One was to educate the members about who they are, and the other one was to ensure the security of 5G for U.S. and also other countries, right? Not just U.S., everybody else that's involved. And then you're giving this one talk and you brought some other people to also give insight. There was a lot of dialogue, and then it got a little bit heated, and then you held the meeting back, kind of trying to bring everybody together. Hey, this is a good question. We're having this discourse. It's a very good thing. Where did it go from there to the you know press leaking you know being leaked to the press and then from there you getting fired from National Security Council. How did that process take place?
0: So um, the the debate on what was going, how we were going to treat. China really was taking place during the summer of 2017, and it was really about how are we going to structure the national security strategy, what we going to, be, what was going to be our priorities, and that was a process of discovery. What, and quite frankly, I that's all I had been working on since 2014. So from 2014 to 2017, when I get to the White House, my two years in the Joint Staff, my time in Beijing, and then coming to the to the White House in May of 2017. Everything had been focused on this competition between the U.S. and China, and what the implications were on a, from, on a societal level, an economic level, on a national security level. When I get into the National Security Council in 2017, I, we start the discussions on framing and writing the new national security strategy. And so in that dialogue was, you know, the first thing you do when you have a strategy is, what's your problem statement? What are you, you know, what, what are the threats that the united states faces and of course you know the same thing that you just mentioned a lot of people talk about climate change and talk about terrorism what we had to uh contend with is there's a lot of things happening um that people outside of national security policy may be aware of don't talk about that infects that affects everything that we do and so we start i started because I had had those discussions outside of the national security policy establishment, I started bringing that information in, and really, for the first time, you know, by the spring of 2017, I had formed in my mind a good picture of how to describe it, what the elements of it were, and then, you know, essentially, how to have a a logical conversation that said, these are the challenges we face, and this is what we we need to do. That conversation by August of 2017 was complete, and then I said, I'm going to be here a short amount of time. If I could do one thing for national security policy, to change the course of the United States going forward to preserve our republic, it would be to secure the internet. And so I started working on talking to engineers about what is 5G, what's the state of play today because we'd said in the national security strategy that data is a strategic resource like oil in the 20th century mm-hmm. data in the 21st century which will drive artificial intelligence sure. and everything that that all the algorithms that go, that essentially guide our lives to better places if we didn't secure that strategic resource then we were at risk as a democracy and so how do we take that you know new uh, essentially uh, beamforming antennas with software defined radios and networks which something that we had used in the military for a long time and apply, and give it to the people but then do it in a way that actually provides security for their data which is uh, in essence what you know, I had come to the conclusion the only way that you democratize in a digital sense is by protecting, is by giving control at the, at, at the citizen level of their data of their data of their data okay. it is and the, the analogy I'm, I make uh, when I talk to people is if you go back to um, Alexander Hamilton and the framing of the Constitution, you know essentially what he was shooting for after having surveyed you know done an extensive survey of all the governments that existed prior was how do we create a government where no one person party or group can a- attain ultimate power because ultimate power is ultimately corrupting. And so that's the Constitution, but then what if it fails? What if, you know, we don't um, actually provide for the people and somebody can gain power? Then we give uh, the American people the Second Amendment, the right to keep and bear arms, so that they can fight uh, an oppressive government if that dream ever fails. And of course, in the digital world, what you saw, what you had begun to see, is a world where you may not know you're being oppressed, or you may not know who your oppressor. And in that world... You may not know you're the oppressor. You may not know you're being oppressed. Or the second one... Or who your oppressor is. Who your oppressor is. Right, because we'd seen in, in, uh, for instance, after the election, using big data analysis, AI bots and social media networks, the Russians had created protests, right? They had, it, it was ostensibly on behalf of Black Lives Matter, I'm talking about the one in New York City, a few days after the election mm-hmm. but it was really the Russians and so what you what you're seeing is in um, going back to data as a strategic resource in, in the digitized world the ability to aggregate data is equivalent to aggregating power and if you can aggregate power then you have to wonder about who has the ability to aggregate data in that world and today the two uh, entities that can really aggregate data are large tech companies and totalitarian regimes democracies have a hard time aggregating data the United States cannot aggregate data because the law prevents it from doing so so we started this, um, this uh, unit within the state department called the global engagement center the global engagement center was supposed to fight radicalization for instance by ISIS and, and prevent um, influence of our population but they can't do their job because they can't aggregate data not even public facing twitter data Right? because there's concern uh, that we use the, the resources of the government to spy on our own population. But one of the, So one of the ways that foreign states go after us is actually take our own social media data and, and use it in ways that influence us. And so in order to discover that, you actually have to be in the data. And so the only ones that can be in the data today are the large tech companies. And so you're essentially offloading to uh, the large tech companies, one of the primary um, purposes of forming the Constitution, which is in the preamble, provide for the common defense. And so if you think about national security, and it gets really the heart of things, right? If you think about national security, we have an Air Force, we have an Army, we have a Navy, we have a Marine Corps, right? I don't think you're worried about, you know, uh, Marines uh, jumping into your building here or getting bombed. Right? You're not concerned about that. But I guarantee you the Chinese are in your networks and the Russians and the North Koreans and everybody else. You guarantee I guarantee it. They're in your networks. They're in everybody's networks. This is what they do. And so, if they're in your networks…
1: That's a strong statement. Sure. You're saying you're uh, I guarantee China and
0: Russia's in our network. I guarantee it. I guarantee it. Particularly because you put out that, um, that video on, on China. I guarantee they're, they're they've come at wow. this place. But so who's, who's responsible for protecting you from that? Government? No. I would assume who no. is it? Not at all. The government protects their own networks. They don't protect your networks. So you're responsible. To, for, to protect your own network. And then of course if you have do you have a Twitter account? Do you have I do. Okay. Uh, Twitter's responsible for protecting that.
1: Twitter is responsible for protecting my account on Twitter, right? And I'm responsible for protecting my network. Your data, your data, My data, right? what I have you? Which we have, uh, we we've right. It's not in the that. U.S. government. Sure, but now let me ask you this. So I had a former undercover FBI agent right here. He sat in that chair three weeks ago. So I asked him. I said, "So what is the what is the real, uh, you know, line you don't cross between the government protecting me, right? Because the government getting too involved, and hey." You know, the whole uh, uh, Apple going to DMV, getting IDs, not Apple, the government going to the DMV and saying we want to get the licenses and then government getting to Apple and saying we want to be able to get access to the phone conversations in case a terrorist does this. Well, in China, because some people will say, well, China is set up in a way where they feel like they're a company and they control what everybody does because they work for the company, right? Where America looks at this is actually how i view america america sees their citizens as 1099 china sees their uh citizens as w2 so because they have more control it's tougher to infiltrate their system than america's because america kind of leaves everybody alone would you agree with that where we are left a little bit more to ourselves without the top having access to the private companies to get data to see if anybody's tapping into our systems or no you you mean from our government yes you're you're left totally alone do you think that's okay?
0: No, I don't think it's okay. Oh, so you're saying they should be more involved? They should be involved in protecting your data. They should be involved ensuring that that there is not undue influence placed on you by a foreign nation because so that you are making decisions based on influence that's coming it. from
1: outside our borders. Okay, so now somebody's watching this and saying well, Pat, that's exactly what a big government guy would say because let them uh, control us and they can do what's they know what's best for us to keep i'm not saying i'm
0: not saying that the government has access to your data right you're saying they should they should should not have access to your data they should ensure that nobody else has access to your data either so do you you remember san bernardino you have there's an argument between apple and fbi absolutely right and apple said we're not giving you the back door clearly okay so think about that in the context of what we're talking about here i don't think anybody should have that back door to have access to your data foreign country so you're not our own that. country okay. no nobody should what i'm saying is you only the only one that should have say over who has access to your data is you that's what it means to live in a in a democracy okay.
1: in a digital world but then this gives me the question so if you're saying the only one that should have access to my data that's fine we're on we're in agreement there but if china is hacking into my data and getting access to what i'm doing you're saying the government should prevent that from happening how can they do that if they don't have access to what I'm doing? Well, they can have access to
0: the network. They don't have to have access to your data, right? Because if your data is encrypted, they can't actually see what your data is. But they can certainly see what China is doing. I mean, that, that piece, I'm confident that we have an understanding of what they're doing within our networks. Just their actual protecting that or preventing that from happening doesn't occur. That's why, by the yeah. way, China built the Great Firewall because they wanted to protect their population because they realized that if they didn't protect their population, then globalization and the open internet yeah. would allow for democratic values to seep in. So they wanted to protect their people from out, uh, out influence that came from outside Do, the you country. you think that's a good move? I think that's a great move because if you're connected to a totalitarian regime and you're open and the totalitarian regime is intent on influencing your population, the way we've designed our current internet absolutely allows
1: for But it. doesn't that mean that we become totalitarian if we do that as well? Like to match against no, them, we kind of have to? If we, if we did what they did, right? So they didn't Which protect, means what? they didn't
0: protect their individual data from them as a government. They just protected it from the outside. So they built a wall around it. What I'm telling you is you, you have control over your data. Not the government, not our government, not their government, not Twitter, not Facebook, that you own it. And so if Facebook wants to sell your data, then they have to get your permission and may even have to pay you to do so.
1: If they want to sell my If they want to sell your data. Who are you more concerned about, the totalitarian regime or the large uh, uh, technology companies? I would say today
0: they have the same business model. Really? Of course. Tell me why. Look at them today. The, both China and Facebook have sensors. China sends their sensors to school. What do the censors learn? The censors actually learn about Tiananmen Square. The truth. Right? Okay. Because they have to censor that discussion on the network. Facebook has sensors. The censors go to school to learn what they need to censor on Facebook's network. Right? Same business model it's about free data it's about using that data except for this one it's about profit for this one it's about control and they even down to the sensors they have the same model you're putting them at the same level Wow I'm not saying I'm not no I'm not at the same level because one is about profit ones about control what I'm telling you is The system that we built, the technological foundations of the system we built, then the app services and business models that we built on top of that allow for power to be equated with aggregation of data. When you do that, you create business models. The business model of a large tech company is equivalent to the business model of China.
1: So do you think – you know how for them, like, they don't uh, don't allow Twitter, Facebook, YouTube to go in. They have their own YouTube. They have their own Facebook, all of that that they have. Do you think – do, are you suggesting that we should only create it for U.S. and not have it available to other countries to have access to our social media, But that, or that's not what you're saying? That's not what I'm saying. Okay, so you're not no. saying put a firewall where the social media is just no, for us? No, no. You're saying firewall to protect us from somebody else? coming through the system and really what
0: i was saying and, and what if you go to page 19 of the national security strategy it says it right there we're going to build a nationwide secure 5g network in other words we're going to, be to build a network unlike any network that's ever been built before and it's really about protecting individual data so that you have control of your data nobody else does and then you can figure out how to how to use it and that then we would take that you know, network that we built, and then we share it with our ally, democratic allies and partners. If you build a network like this, a totalitarian regime can't control the population because they can't prevent them. They don't know what they what, the, what information they have access to. They can't see into what they're saying, right? Which is what you can have in China. They can't block you out from having other information that that they might not want you to have because they can't see what you're doing. And it really becomes a competitive advantage, both from an economic standpoint, but also from a societal standpoint.
1: Let me ask you this. When you came out and you had the meeting and you talked about China the way you did, right? And you kind of said, here's what we have to worry about with this side and this is what they're going to be doing. They are our biggest threat. And then here's 5G. What's really going on? Did you immediately get a sense on who was for you and who was against your talking points it's kind of like in this room if i all of a sudden say tom brady's the greatest of all time within five seconds i know who hates the patriots right. and who likes them right did you kind of sit there and say oh wow that guy crosses arms he's definitely not happy he's curious did you get that feeling yeah so and was um, it crossed the board I, one side politically or was it both sides no, were happy and so, so 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 let's go back to
0: 5g right because you know what i'm asking yeah right? i know okay. exactly what you're asking once the decision made to to confront China that was a process that was just going to run I didn't need to really focus on that I focused on 5G I focused on a secure internet when I started sharing because what I had done is I spoke to you know network engineers people that built networks when I started sharing the ideas that that we had come up with if I had been smarter politically at the Mm -hmm. time I would have known exactly how to answer that question and I would have said anybody that's got telecom in their portfolio was immediately against it, because the telecom industry was immediately against it, right? That was a, that was a clear um, uh, signal that if I was paying attention at the time and really understood D.C. in a political way, I would, again, I was a national security professional. I was a military guy. I didn't really get into politics. But in, in, in much the way, same way that you see uh, industry influence on just about anything in D.C., mm-hmm. the industry – The telecom industry in particular was, once this kind of made its way outside of government channels, because those people that are in a telecom job in D.C. have some relationship with the industry, that information got out. Once it got out, the industry said, "Uh uh-huh. And and that's when I, you know, started um, my, my pathway to having my paper leaked and, me asked to leave the national security Council.
1: did you count would kind do of, you know how sometimes you know if you say something you you either don't know the consequence of you saying something or you know and you say it anyways which one were you i
0: would say um that
1: uh both
0: oh you oh, okay right so some of them i did not some of them i didn't know i didn't know the political lay of the land but at the end of the day it was about preserving our republic it was about our constitution it was about national security mm. it's not about me it was never about me when the first time day one when i take the oath of office and putting on the uniform it's not about me anymore it's about the constitution it's about preserving the republic there's if if it ever became about me
1: then that's my time to leave do you think most people start like a statement statesman like you and then when you're around too much then you get kind of a uh, tainted Based on the environment you're around, you know what I'm, you know what I'm saying, right? You get in. To me, most people I see, originals like, I really want to make an impact. I really want to do this. It's statements mentality, right? And they're like, hey, we have an opportunity to make 10 million here, 15 million here, 22 million and We can have control over here. We can have more influence here. Do you think starts that when it changes, where if you want to move up, you kind of need to get a little bit out there and uh, accept the reality of what politics can do? Well, so. I look at myself as an entrepreneur,
0: and when you take somebody that's entrepreneurial and that really believes in the oath of office that they've taken, and then you put them in a bureaucracy where they're not, uh, you, I had, um, when I went to China, that I took a year at Language Institute, two years living in China, that's three years, I told the Air Force I'd give them back three for one, so that added ten years to my commitment. And so as time went on that and as I rose up in the ranks and I would move, say, every year, I would get a two-year commitment. So Got if it. you move every year and you get yeah. a two-year commitment, you never really have the opportunity to get out. And so I'm an entrepreneur. I'm living in a bureaucracy, but I can't leave. I have no, I have no choice. I have to stay. So I can either say, you know, get angry about it. Right, that I'm beating my head against the wall because you know things need to be done, or I can just learn to, you know, live within it and try to drive as much change as deep as I can
1: for as long as I'm there. I ask this question for one reason. Like you know, you listen to Joe Biden. He's been in the world, in the political world, for a long time, right? Yeah. Okay. Did he start off, you know, having to play all these political games that you have to play, or was it a good cause? And then you look at Mitch McConnell, two names that you talk about in your book, one's a Republican, one's a Democrat, and they're both have some ties to China, right? One, Mitch McConnell, 1993, I think he married his wife, whose father's a very powerful, I don't know if you want to say the business owner, entrepreneur, and they're connected to the communistic regime. And then on the other side, Joe Biden, his son, Hunter, it's all over the news, everybody's hearing about all the issues with what happened there. I ask it again, this is not something that's a favorable to Democrats, not liking China or wanting to support China, or this is not just Republicans not liking China or disliking China. This is purely on both sides on what you're seeing. All right. And, and when you went and investigated more, were you kind of like, oh, my gosh, I didn't know the Biden family was like this or the McConnell. Was it one of those things where the more and more and more research and investigation you did, the more like this is bigger than you thought it was? Did you have one of those moments yourself? Well,
0: there was, so the one moment that I had uh, was when I got the briefing in the fall of 2014 uh, that was from one of the major audit firms. And when I looked, when I opened that briefing and I realized, you know, a lot of the elements of, that we would use to um, attack a country using an air attack, I saw play out in front of my eyes using economics, finance and information. And so, you know, that was a that was a moment, it, it broke my mind because up until that point I thought America's the greatest nation on earth and we're unassailable, we're the most powerful, you know, nothing could happen to us. And that was a point when I realized that no, I mean, we could have carrier battle groups, nuclear subs, F35s and all of this capability and spend 800 billion dollars a year on defense. But if our society was basically being attacked at their job level, at their societal level, then we had lost the ability to protect our nation in a globalized, internet-powered world. And from that point on, I just started studying. And and I read everything I could, and I talked to everybody I could. So. Because I'd been at the Council on Foreign Relations, I had access to a lot of executives of finance companies, of investment companies. And so I started going around and talking to you know some of their research offices and talking to people and trying to understand what was going on in our country and how global business worked, how global finance worked, how did investment work, and what, you know, did I ever stop finding rot? No. It's, I find it every single day as you you continue to pull back the layers of it you realize it goes through a society because it's based on this fundamental belief that openness will lead to democracy and that is a key to China the Chinese Communist Party's power because when we believe that openness would lead to democracy they said there's my opportunity because they're going to let me have access to Their finance, their trade, their investment, their immigration, their media, their politics, the internet, academia. I have access to everything. You know, think about Commodore Perry sailing in with the great flight fleet into Japan. He had to use guns Mm -hmm. to get into Japan. We just let the Chinese in. And sometimes we forced them to pay. Sometimes we just gave it to them.
1: It's kind of part of their philosophy, though, if you think about the whole Confucius and art of war it's battling without having a battle right the whole philosophy that you talk which was brilliant when you talked about it in the book but what did you learn from the McConnell family and what did you learn from Biden's connection to China what I learned
0: at the White House and this is really at the White House because when you before you go to the White House you always hear these stories about you know it's the White House calling you know people like stand up or like you know how can I help you so I'm at the White House and I'm working with think tanks and law firms trying to, number one, expose what the Chinese were doing, but number two, come up with, you know, credible policy options that we could implement that would get them, you know, that would prevent them from taking advantage of our population. And time after time, they say, sorry, I can't help you. Um, I don't want to anger my Chinese funders or my Chinese customers. Uh, My partners don't, you know, aren't comfortable with us because we have a lot of business in China. And I'm like, I'm calling from the White House. (laughs) And our top would think tanks, give you this answer. top think tanks, and the top oh, law firms in the country no were telling me I can't help you, and wow. so, so you know I knew about I knew this already, mm-hmm. right? So, it, but then when you you really get an understanding of okay, if they won't even help the White House, then we've got a serious serious problem. Mm-hmm. What did you learn about McConnell and uh, Biden family? Well, so I I put. Uh, they're the only ones that I named in the book. And the reason I did is because it's all out in the open. You can go uh, read the sources, at the New York Times uh, report, Wall Street Journal reports. Biden, his son, went with him on Air Force Two over to China. Ten days later is uh, named a board member of Bohai uh, Harvest Hedge Fund, which is a billion and a half dollar hedge fund. McConnell, you already talked about his his. Family, his father-in-law um, knows Jiang Zemin, former um, chairman of the Chinese Communist Party, and his sister-in-law is on the board uh, of the Bank of China. Right? What influence would you say is there? You would, they would say there is no influence. That just happened, on part of McConnell. It happens to be my family uh, relationships. On the part of Biden, he would say that was my son. It was you really had nothing to do with me, although he did go over with him on on Air Force Two. But that being said, it's not about quid pro quo. It's about adopting Xi Jinping's worldview, and his worldview, which he says at Davos many times, is globalization's good. You know, we should we should continue to have open markets. We should continue to have open systems so that we can all collectively do well together as a global community. That's That's essentially – I'm paraphrasing what Xi Jinping says. But that's not what he believes. Because if you read the Chinese Communist Party documents, like, for instance, the document number nine that have been um, – that have come out of the country and have been translated, then you realize they repudiate every single element of, for example, the Atlantic Charter, which is a good one-page template for the international order, signed by FDR and Winston Churchill, eight paragraphs, one page – democratic principles, free trade, rule of law, and self-determination. That's it. That's that. In a nutshell, that tells you about what the UN, WTO, Bretton Woods, all that's about. The Chinese Communist Party doesn't believe in any of those. So when when he goes to Davos, Xi Jinping goes to Davos, and he says, we need to stay open for business. It's not we need to stay open for business because democracy, human rights, civil liberty, and rule of law are great. It's because if you stay open for business... I can ensure that we have access to science, technology, innovation, and capital, and talent.
1: So um, let let me ask this question. So for for me, I used to be in business with a guy who, behind closed doors, this one guy, I would always look at him and I would talk to him, he was always afraid of one guy. And he couldn't stand the other guy he was working with, but he was frightened of him. Why are you afraid of that guy? You know, and I would always ask him, I'm trying to figure out why you're afraid of this guy, why are you afraid of this guy? Finally, a year and a half later I found out what it was. So he was doing some things with business behind closed doors, and it was not great, it was a little bit past gray, close to, you know, breaking the law. And eventually he got caught. But under the table he was paying him twenty five thousand dollars a month cash, not ten ninety nine, mm. not W two, which twenty five cash is fifty K a month. Taking- Pre-tax, right? The same as $600,000 a year income. So one day he's upset and, you know, he tells uh, uh, one of my competitors and that comes to me and I find out about it. Like, now it makes sense why he is afraid of him. But then when he stopped paying the $25,000 cash, the other guy told everybody about his business, and he lost it anyways, right? Right. So, so for me, here's how it, Here's how I view it, and I want to get your perspective to see how you see this. But the NBA situation right now, with what's going on with LeBron, right? Or not just LeBron, there was a- Maury. Uh, Maury, right? The Houston GM yeah. makes a comment about uh, a bit, you know what's going on over there, and then they're upset canceling all preseason games, and then all of a sudden, the owner of Houston makes his comments, and then from there, Adam Silver says, I support freedom of speech. Steve Kerr didn't want to say anything because he kind of didn't have a, uh, wasn't too educated on the situation. At that time, Popovich said a few words, and then LeBron says maybe he misspoke, right, He would, what he shouldn't have said. So for me, I look at that and say, okay, why is this happening? I want to kind of get your thoughts as well. Why, why are they doing this? Okay, why would they be doing this? Is it political? To me, it's not political. To me, it's... One and a half billion viewers there. Same reason why U.S. is trying to make movies over there, and you're getting Rock making movies doing six hundred million dollars here with giving love to China versus just doing it. It's another market. Actually, to me, that's pretty honest because it's money play. Right. It's not political play or anything. Man, we can sell one and a half billion people more shoes. We can sell them more media. We can go out there and you know get the games to go over there instead of making forty million a year, we make fifty million a year, right. sixty million a year. In a situation like this before I ask you the LeBron opinion, but in a situation like this, do you do you process it from the standpoint of, well, maybe Mitch has some uh, uh, a business that he's doing, and out of respect to his wife, he's just kind of giving the respect to China, and maybe Biden's son has some respect, and it's a son, you know, you don't have 50 sons, you got a couple sons, it's blood, he's just trying to protect his son to do what he's doing. Do you think that is an acceptable reasoning to allow them to do what they're doing, or should it be America first because of the responsibilities that you have, then your kids, your wife, your family? How do you process that? Well, let me put it this way, um, and this was really something I had told my wife uh, leading up
0: to 2016 uh, um, elections. Now, you were in the military, mm-hmm. right? If I had any of the relationships that I just talked about, there is no way I could have a security clearance. wouldn't happen. I could not get that through the system. It would not grant me a top-secret security clearance.
1: If you were, let me clarify, if you're Mitch McConnell or Joe Biden with those relationships, you wouldn't be able to get the security clearance that you are Right. Fair enough. Okay. Right? Yep. Absolutely. This is yes. just facts. So
0: um, if I had done, if I had taken my, you know, personal uh, email or my, prof- or my work email and basically taken that all off and, and put it on, um, you know, a server and had some classified
1: message, what do you think would have happened you're fired, you, you know, you're... you're court-martial, yeah, right? Yeah, court-martial, absolutely. Kicked it's out. of you, Right? You, no, done. there's no yeah. doubt. Sure.
0: And so as you see these things, these kinds of things that, that I know that, you know, whoever gets elected as commander-in-chief has a responsibility. They're the, they are the, the, the chief diplomat. They're the chief law enforcement officer. They're the commander-in-chief. So how can that person have the kind of relationships... That I, as a military member, can't even have a security clearance with or do the kind of things that I would be fired or court-martialed with. So, you know, it's pretty black and white to me when you're the commander-in-chief and you are requiring the people that work for you, that swear an oath... That are working for you as the chief executive, particularly commander in chief, because commander of a military force is much different than being the senior executive at a a company. Mm -hmm. It's a completely different type of authority over somebody, you know, the authority to to not just fire but also imprison, right? Because that's court martial authority. And you and yet you do the things that you say or you must enforce that they cannot do. Then you've, then you've created a problem. And we, this is pervasive in our system, that our politicians can have the kind of relationships that we can't even allow our military members to have security clearances having. Let's leave that aside, okay? We'll just set that aside. Now you have the president of the United States saying, here's a non-market economy that we basically let into the w two in 2001, and they broke every rule in the book and continue to, and they're not going to stop. So you know what we're going to do? We're going to treat them just like we did prior to going to the WTO. Prior to going to the WTO, they had to have a vote on most favored nation status every single year. Right? Once that stopped, then corporate money started pouring in. Foreign direct investment started pouring into China, and they grew like crazy. They took 70,000 factories and 3.4 million manufacturing jobs. And so the president of the United States says, okay, they're clearly not – don't have any intention on following the rules, we're gonna put tariffs on because that's what we had before. They start we started and we let them in. We're gonna do the same exact thing. And then you have Joe Biden and you have Mitch McConnell saying that's a bad idea. Now, does that relation do those relationships contribute uh-huh. to that? Or is it just because they believe that? <laughs> I don't know the answer to that. But I guarantee you, any counterintelligence officer that brought me into interrogation asked me why I made that decision. They would have grounds to say, you know, you're untrustworthy. You didn't report that, you know, your, your, your relative was making, you know, millions of dollars from the Chinese. Or you didn't report that you got millions of dollars from the Chinese. So I'm not saying that there's quid pro quo there, but there's enough of, hey, I don't like tariffs, to, hey, I've adopted Xi Jinping's worldview, to, hey, this is actually harmful to the United States. I leave it to other people to kind of figure that out. It's not for me to figure out. It is for me to say that if I had done it on active duty in the military, I'd
1: either not have a security clearance or i have been court-martialed. So so let me ask you this. That same argument, you got two different communities here, okay? You got those who have political power and influence, say McConnell, Biden, and many other names who support China, and they're saying, hey, take it easy. They're an ally. I think you went to the uh, Department of Commerce, and they said, China's not the adversary. They're our friends. We cooperate with them. These were the words you wrote in your book. Right, Okay. So on one side, you have the political people, that they shouldn't be doing this, because if they have interest with their kids, wife, whatever, okay. Then the other side is uh, uh, investors, business owners, hedge fund folks, entrepreneurs, folks who made their money in America, yet they they want to make sure China still has the ability to do business because they lose money, right? Of course. This goes to the bottom line. right? Do you think their motives is okay because it's just purely money and they want to protect their investments for themselves, their clients, their businesses, and these two are complete different ways to be held accountable? That's a system we built, right? A you, business you know seller, what I'm asking. I know obviously. exactly what okay. you're asking. That's
0: a system we built and so you can't criticize businessmen because uh, the, our system says you owe fiduciary responsibility to the shareholder that's your job and and, and, and oh by the way you can actually be sued or brought up on charges for not doing your job not fulfilling your fiduciary responsibility so there could be an argument made that if you're not cooperating with the chinese communist party that you're actually harming your company okay there you go right okay. so right, right. so you can't criticize them for that what you can criticize is the policies of the government that allowed for the behavior to occur in the first place? And I'll give you an example. Level one versus level three assets I talk about it in the book. China has non convertible currency, strict capital controls. Mm-hmm. Since 2015, you can't get money out of the country, only in special circumstances and only depending on what the business you're, you're doing. So th- we have plenty of corporations that have billions of dollars over there that they're carrying on their financial statements as level one assets, meaning just like cash in the bank here. But you can't get it. And so, but if you're showing profits and it's going into cash in the bank in China, then how are you being compensated as an executive or or uh, on a board of directors for that company? You're probably getting compensated based on the money you're making in China. But yet, the shareholders can never see that money because you have strict capital controls in a non-convertible currency. Okay, so we've created an incentive system but just based on our accounting standards, FASB, and the Securities and Exchange Commission can change this, the Treasury Department can change this and say, no, if it's in China, it's non-convertible currency, strict capital controls, they can't get the money out, That's a level three asset. And therefore, all you corporations need to do a restatement. What would that say? Now CEOs wouldn't want to invest in China because they, it wouldn't count towards their compensation. Now board of directors wouldn't advise uh, the CEOs that they should invest in China because it wouldn't count mm. towards their compensation. We build a system that incentivizes behavior for the destruction of the
1: country, yeah. that's not the p- p- fault of the business community, that's the fault of the government. Great point. So it's So essentially a company who runs a sales organization, runs a compensation structure, that produces bad behavior. It's not the salesperson's fault. It's the, in the, it's the organization's fault for producing compensation structure the way it did. So right. what you're saying is a complete restructure of our agreements and arrangements with China. You're talking about having to change a lot of things for us to move forward. You're not just saying something yeah, small here. But but what I'm not saying that we're that we're doing something that's untoward.
0: I'm just saying let's follow the rules. For instance, in investment. Right. Let's let's us follow the rules, or everybody in China's also following the rules. Right. Exactly. So they're not
1: going to follow the rules, though.
0: Right. Then, for example, so let's go into investing. So now, right now, we have MSCI All World Index going from went from zero to five percent to twenty percent weighting in in Chinese equities. Right. Okay. Chinese companies they come here, they uh, register stocks. Uh, and list on some of our exchanges, but let's go on. the unlisted ones, the registered ones. That's a $1 trillion dollars they've made off our capital markets. There's no audit or transparency requirements that resembles anything that a U.S. company has to follow, right? So a Chinese company can come in here and get registered and get listed on our stock exchange and get access to our retirement funds. That's what MSCI MSCI All World Index is followed by all the institutional investors and the endowments, the university endowments. So our retirement funds get sent over to China to pay for investments. So we have no idea actually what they have because they don't have the same audit and transparency requirements of, as a, U, of a U.S. company. That's a policy that we have right now. So – China can register and list their stocks on our exchanges and our our retirement investment investment officers can send money over to China and they don't have to correspond to the same rules that U.S. companies have to. So, make Chinese companies correspond to the exact same rules that U.S. companies have to, and I'll tell you why they won't. Because sending over the audit data is a national security violation in China. In other words, it is treason for you to send the audit information from a Chinese company to the
1: U.S. Let me ask you, do you see any possibility of an agreement coming up with all these technicalities? This is not a small thing here. No. Is, okay, so you are no. for, you don't the change. Chinese
0: have already decided to decouple. It's not about us decoupling. It's about the Chinese Communist Party maintaining control over their society. And in order to maintain control over their society, they need to maintain